morning, everyone. Welcome to The Eight. Um, this is our second service here at SMR Church. My name is Father Nathaniel, and we're talking about something in which we can all relate to, which is loneliness, which is loneliness of handling isolation. So this is our theme as we are in this three-part series, and we're smack dab in the middle of this series. So I have two kids. Uh, one of them is six years old, and we're doing something now, which I, I think we should have done a lot earlier, but it's okay, better now than never, is that we're creating like this chore, chores list. Like we, we got like these things like for her to write down her chores and for her to, you know, make her bed, you know, brush her teeth and chest check, you know, so that way she can do her chores by herself. And, and I don't think this is just a kid's thing, but it's also an adult thing of doing things independently. Like, it's a sign of maturity. It's a sign of growth to be able to do certain things independently. Like, it's a huge win to be able to do something on your own. I mean, I can see it in my daughter, six years old. It's like, oh, you know, I made my bed. I changed by myself. I'm a big girl, right? And, she, you know, her chest is up. Her chin is up. She feels like she's a big girl, and she walks down the stairs like, I'm independent woman. I did, I, you know, I changed, and I brushed my teeth all by myself. You got nothing on me. She has that type of body language when she does that. So, and it's not just a kid thing. It's a human thing, right? When people say, like, well, I'm going to start my own business, or I'm moving out, and I'm going to do my own thing, it's a sign of, like, it's deceptive, but it's a sign that we're growing when we move from dependency to independency. Like, there's this movement that happens when I go from being dependent on someone to being Mr. Independent or Mrs. Independent. It's a sign of maturity. In our mind, we look at it as a being a big sign of independency. Like, I see it all the time with college kids. Like, and, and I'm sorry if this if I'm uh, adding more gas to the fire in some homes. But when I talk to college, they, they finish high school, say, oh, I want to move to Idaho for college. I'm like, why? They're like, I don't know. I just want to move out. I want to do, do my own thing. I'm like, dude, you got Hope Scholarship. You got a furry ride here in Georgia. No, I want to do my own thing. I want to move out. I want to do my own thing. So there's this thing in, in our minds that if I move out, if I do my own business, if I do my own thing, it's a sign of maturity and growth that I'm able to, like, stand on my own two feet. So there's this movement of going from dependency to independency as being a sign of growth and progress in life. Last week, we talked about an article, which is kind of the, basically the theme of this entire series, uh, by the U.S. Surgeon General. His name is Dr. Vivek Murthy, and he wrote this great article that came out of this year in May, May 2023, and it was titled, Our Epidemic of Loneliness and Isolation. Our epidemic of loneliness and isolation. Because there's this sh shift that's happening. It's kind of ironic. We went from talking about a pandemic, 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 and then all of a sudden, the pandemic added more gas to a fire of an epidemic which was already occurring. A theme that you're seeing a lot of things that, that are post-COVID related is that m working from home was already happening, but COVID expedited it. People were already lonely, but COVID expedited it, so forth and so on. So you're seeing this movement of the post-COVID results, which obviously we will see for decades to come. But a big thing that it added more gas to the fire is the epidemic in our country of loneliness. And why I love this series, because everyone from a six-year-old to an 80-year-old can experience loneliness and isolation it has nothing to do with your marital status has nothing to do with your socioeconomic status has not has nothing to do with any of that but there is an epidemic that is occurring related 
to our loneliness. And from this 80-page so article, the gist of it, or at least the bottom line from all the scientific and sociological research, the bottom line was this. Positive relationships give, uh, give us happier, healthier, and longer lives. Positive relationships give us happier, healthier, and longer lives. And we kind of talked about it in part one. You can check it out online. We, all the scientific research, different sociological research and studies continue to prove this to be true. That positive relationships, and when we are more connected and we feel like we belong and we are accepted and we're building not these superficial relationships of just, hey, you guys, you want to go watch a movie together? Not, we need that. But deeper, authentic relationships in which I can be vulnerable and open and lean on others, that type of authentic, genuine relationship, t time and time again, study after study, proves that it, there is positive health benefits because we are wired by divine design we are wired to need genuine, deeper relationships. And we can all relate to being lonely at times. This independency, which obviously is the very fabric of our country, you can start to see it seep into different mentalities of our American culture. Like, for example, you kind of see it in like, well, I'm going to do my own thing. I, I, I'm, I'm going to go on my own. And you, and you kind of, you see that a, a big theme in different aspects, in the corporate America, personally, so forth and so on. I'm on my own. I want to do my own thing. You see another aspect of relationships being devalued. We talked about a study that was part of this study by Dr. Vivek Murthy, is that one in four family members have an estranged family member. One in four people have an estranged family member, a, a, you know, a, a sibling, cousin, aunt, uncle, someone who's kind of just said, well, I'm done with all of you. And they just, and it's on a rise. The amount of people who are estranged from their families, we are at an all-time rise, and the trajectory is showing that it's continuing to go because we're just wanting to break family units. I move on from this person. I'm done with him or her. I blocked him or her, so forth and so on. And I said this last week, and I want to reiterate this. Sometimes it is the most appropriate, healthy, mature thing to do is to block that person. But for many of us, it's our go-to thing. And we over-spiritualize it. Oh, the most best thing I can do is to block that person. I'm done with him or I'm done with her. And, and, and we end up ghosting people and we move on because we're done with him or her. So relationships are being devalued at, at, at a higher rate now than ever before. Another aspect of American culture is prosperity. We want bigger, better, faster, we're in a house, but no, we got to move on because we keep up with the Joneses. You see what they posted? You see what they got? We got to be doing the same. So I need to pick up more hours. I need to get a new career. I need to continue to move up, 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 up the corporate ladder. The whole idea of being content where I'm at, uh-uh. That's not American culture. American culture is I need to continue to move forward. I need to get the bigger and better thing because did you see what he, what he got on Instagram? You see what she posted? No, I got to get more. And you, you, you nag the person next to you. How come we don't have that? What do we need to do to make sure we get that? And we got to show it off. So prosperity is a big aspect of American culture. And I guess really closely related to that is I'm going to do my truth. I'm going to focus on the self. I'm going to do what's best for me. I've given up so much of myself for others. Now it's time for me to do what's best for me, what's true to me. And relationships, marriages, the fabric of society is ripping apart purely by this ideology that I'm going to do my truth, which within itself is, makes zero sense because truth is a constant. So to make it personalized or individualized 
goes against the essence of the definition of the word truth. There is a constant, the truth. But anyway, that's a different story, but that's a big part of American post-Christian theology. 70 years ago, there was a technology advancement that took America by storm. Anyone want to guess what that was? 70 years ago. 70 years ago, yeah, 70. Anyone want to guess? It, it was a box that ended up going in everyone's house. The TV. So in, in the year, let me get this right, in the year 1950, 20% of families had a TV in their home. By the year 1950, 20% of families had a TV in their home. 20, huh? 28 years later, 28 years later, 98% of people had a TV in their home. And studies show that this had a big aspect. Of course, social media, that's a whole other animal altogether. But the TV began to move, uh, move American culture as a whole to individualism, to separation, because of the TV being placed in 98% of families' homes by the year 1978. So instead of us coming together and, 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 and sharing life together, what's end up happening? We end up being, you know, isolated at home, watching TV shows about families. Like I grew up watching Family Matters and uh, Full House and things like that. So it's kind of ironic. So, it, 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 you know, instead of us coming together as family or friends, we end up as individuals isolated watching shows about families and about friends, for crying out loud. So it's kind of ironic how there is this movement that occurred because of the TV. Also in the year 1978 and moving forward from there, there was a decrease in club memberships, like people going on part of like the bowling club or part of whatever, like any type of like club that people used to join. It was a big thing in the 70s, but by the time 1978 rolls around, when 98% of Americans have a TV, that begins to decrease. And you know what also begins to decrease sharply in the, in the 70s as well? Church attendance begins to decrease because the whole idea of me belonging, community, that I'm with others, that begins to decrease because individualism is at an all-time high. So the self-help movement began to be a big part of American culture in the 70s. And this is where you see a lot of books, even till today, I think it's a big thing, of self-help books. But before that, that was never a driving part, or that was not even language that was part of, of the fabric of America, as far as this is a self-help book. Um, self-help books are good. They're awesome. But it began to have a negative impact because it continued to individualize people and separate people. So instead of me trying to have this collective approach to what's best for us as, as a group or as a community, it ended up being what's best for me. And this ended up being a byproduct of the whole self-help movement. There was a study that showed in 1985 that studied linguistics, economics, and career interests. There was a study that looked at all these different elements. And a new word that started to become part of, um, of American language and very normalized is personal ambition. Like I, my own personal drive, what's in it for me. This, it, at a high level, there's nothing wrong when you say personal ambition. But honestly, it's just covering a toxic level of selfishness and individualism to a high toxic level. But again, no one's really thinking about it at this level because it's just becoming part of mainstream American culture. And it impacts us till today as far as my own personal ambition and what's best for me. What I want to share with you is an ancient Jewish story 
that gives us a perfect realistic example of what happens when personal ambition, isolation, loneliness leads us to death to the soul. And we're going to be looking at the story of King David in the year 900 BC. So he was a king of the, of, of the state of Israel. And you can kind of look at this, this icon, which is Coptic art. Um, and you can kind of see, you know, he it looks like he and he has his life all together. You know, he's wearing this royal robe. You see him holding a harp because he was a musician. You see other aspects of his life onto the left and the right and very small. I see David and Goliath. Maybe that's a story many of us are familiar with. But you, he was, I mean, he was at the top of his game. I mean, he was King David. Like, everyone looked up to him. He was the man. So we're going to pick up a part of, of David's life, and we will find ourselves embedded into David's narrative. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. So, there's springtime, you go off to war, time to, to get the bad guys, try to take over more land, so forth and so on. So they're moving forward, they're a strong military, you know, David is leading the, leading the way. And then, but David, sorry, David is not <laughs> leading the way. He's telling others, you go. And David remains behind. He's David. That's other people's jobs. That's low level. That's, that's military stuff. I'm, I'm doing my own thing. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. And, and, and don't miss this lit literary element here. The author is specifically and intentionally pointing out where David is. Yes, physically he's on top of the roof of his house, but he's also, he feels like he's on top of the world. Everything is going so successfully for him. He's on top. He's on the roof of his palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. Kind of know where this is going. And David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, um, David, her name is Bathsheba. But you know who, the, she, she's the daughter of someone. She's the daughter of Iliam. She's the wife of Uriah. Uriah is not just a, a normal guy. Uriah is your right-hand man. He's, he's like a soldier. He's a lead commander in the army. Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and David slept with Bathsheba. Here comes a man to tell David, dude, you got to stop. I know what you're trying to do. You got to stop. This is not just some girl. This is the daughter of someone. This is the wife of someone. But you know what? David is on top. He's so isolated, he has no one there to keep him accountable. He's in his own little world to the point that he only sends messengers to go get Bathsheba and bring Bathsheba to him. He's in his own little world. He has no one to keep him accountable because I think we've all experienced this at some moment in time, is that success can be blinding. For us to reach success in any aspect of our lives, we end up, uh, uh, because of our weakness, we look down to others. And we, we end up being on an island because we're so blinded by our own success. It becomes intoxicating. And it, it, it's hard for us to find any balance. Here's David. He's King David. But he has created his social health to be at a point where no one is able to be like, dude, David, come on. 
Somebody's able to try to open his eyes and tell him, come on, that Bathsheba, you know, you know whose daughter she is? You know whose wife she is? Like, so someone's trying to open his eyes. But to David, that means nothing because he has no one there to keep him in check. He has zero accountability to the point that he only sends a messenger who has no authority to tell David, dude, what are you doing? He's just a messenger. So he tells Bathsheba to come and David sleeps with her. If you look in the story, you'll see, um, we talked about these four things. This is, uh, you know, the bread and butter of American culture here. I'm gonna do things on my own. Relationships are being devalued. We are trying to pursue prosperity and we're focusing on the self. Relate this to where David is right now. David decided to, instead of going with the group on this military, uh, you know, going out to battle, David decided to stay back behind. He isolated himself. Instead of being one with his group, being one with his community, of him being one with them, he says, uh-uh, I'm better than that. And he isolated himself. He put himself in his own bubble. He distanced himself from a community, from a group. He began to stay behind. As far as relationships devalue, when someone to try to tell him, dude, Bathsheba, she's someone's daughter, she's someone's wife, it meant nothing to David because he has already devalued any type of relationship. He has objectified what he wants because of the lusts of his flesh. So he has already devalued any type of relationship. To him, she's just the woman that he wants to sleep with. So he has devalued any type of relationship. Prosperity, he felt elevated. I'm on top. Yes, physically he goes on top of a roof. But the author is also going to point out that he looks down on everyone else. This ends up blinding him and intoxicating him. And he ends up focusing on the self to the point that he says, get her because she belongs to me. The story is highly entertaining. Honestly, I'm sure Hollywood has probably made a movie of what happened with this story because to the point that David ends up sleeping with her and David gets Bathsheba pregnant. And get this, since Bathsheba's husband is a commander, a leader in the army, he's out in the military field, right? So David's like, oh man, I screwed up. I got to do something. So he tries to get Uriah, the husband, Bathsheba's husband, pull him, out, pull him out of the military and, and brings him back home, says, hey, you know, Uriah, you know, you've been out for there for a long time. You come, come. You need to spend time with your wife. And, and David gets him drunk. David gets him drunk to the point of trying to get Uriah to come back and sleep with his wife. So that way, phew, he saved, he, he, he covered himself. I mean, isn't that... So many of our life experiences, we do one bad thing and we, we realize we screwed up, but what's the temptation? Let me cover up what I just screwed up doing. There's a temptation of like, okay, I'm on top, my success, my isolation, my individualism, I can cover up the mistake I made and we try to cover it up. Or, I mean, parents, we, we see this in our children, right? It's, it's crystal clear in our kids, but it's a human thing within us as well. We do the same thing, we try to deceive ourselves. Well, I can take control of this situation and we end up trying to control the narrative ourselves. So Uriah, the commander, tells David. David's trying to lure Uriah in to come trying to sleep with, with your wife. He tries to cover it up. Uriah says to David, the ark and in, in Israel and Judah are all staying in tents, and my commander Joab and my Lord's men are all camped out in this open country. So Uriah is saying, they're all out doing all this military stuff. They're out in, in the battlefield, all my people. How can I, how can I go to my house to eat and drink and make love to my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. Look at Uriah. He's saying, you know, it's cool, David, that you're bringing me back home and, you know, to, to, to be with my wife and this is awesome, but I, I, I can't. I can't relax and just, you know, put my feet up and, ha you know, and, and sleep with my wife and, and, and have a good time when I know my, my, my people 
are out there struggling. My, my people are out there in the battlefield. I can't just leave them and, and just for them to rot and to suffer in, 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 the, in, in the battle. I, how, can, how can I? And he shows submission to David. He says, how, how can I? Surely as you live, David, I will not do such a thing. I'm sure, I'm sure David felt, man, his conscience was probably pricked of just seeing the integrity of Uriah. And here's David trying to cover up one lie with another lie and trying to take control of this situation. Uriah is the perfect example of being interdependent on others. That he felt emotionally connected to his military men. He didn't isolate himself. He was emotionally connected to him. He had the temptation to isolate himself, but he fought that temptation and being one with his people. When you and I reach success in any capacity, relationship, career-wise, you name it, any type of status, and we label it as success, we fight a temptation to isolate ourselves. It comes with the package. When you see success coming our way, we end up isolating ourselves, and we end up becoming blinded by other things around us. <laughs> if you don't believe me, if seeing it in your own life, turn on the news. When you see a high-status politician, this prestigious whatever, and all of a sudden they get caught doing something, an affair, something with their taxes, you name it, and you look at them and you're like, how, how, can, how did they get to this point? How would they allow that to happen? Well, success becomes blinding. It intoxicates us, and we see that in David, and I think we can relate to the same. The flip side, when we do fail, and we are in the pits, and we are in a dark place, we also fall into the temptation of isolating ourselves. Oh, I know what I'm doing. I, I, I can just put on a smile at church, and everything is good. I don't need anybody. I can get myself out of this. How many of us in our own struggles, uh, we, we, I, if I want to stop, I can stop if I want to. We end up isolating ourselves as well. So there's a temptation to isolate ourselves either through success or through failure. There's a common Greek word in Scripture, which is, the pronunciation is elilon, elilon. And this means one another, one another. There has to be a mutual connection of one another. And this is an integral part to the Christian worldview because when passivity kicks in, individualism arises. We say, oh, I'm going to do my own thing, and we end up isolating ourselves and being in our own bubble and distance ourselves from everyone because I don't want anyone to come into my life either through success or through failure. We end up distancing ourselves. But St. Paul gives us practical tactics and handles. If we're going to follow Jesus, what does that mean for us to, to love one another? And he makes it extremely practical. We read in the gospel, for us to love one another. St. Paul says we need to restore one another. St. Paul says we need to carry one another's burdens. We need to bear with one another. He writes to the Ephesians. He says we need to be kind to one another. He tells the Romans we need to accept one another. He tells the Hebrews we need to encourage one another. He tells the city of Ephesus we need to submit to one another. And the list goes on. This word, this Greek word, alilon, is mentioned at least 100 times in Scripture. So the whole idea of me being a follower of Jesus on my own, well, I'm going to do my thing. I'm just going to come to church, do my liturgy thing, and walk back out. I'm not going to join a life group. I'm not going to go to this women's group. I'm not going to go to this, this gathering. I'm going to do my own thing. You've completely missed out on what it, what it means to be a Jesus follower. Here comes the rest of David's story. The Lord sends a message to David to try to shake him up and wake him up. 
and it's through the prophet Nathan. And Nathan begins to tell David a story. When he came to him, when Nathan came to David, Nathan said to him, once upon a time there were two men in a certain town. There was a rich guy and there was a poor guy. And the story, I'm going to paraphrase it for you. Nathan begins to give, him, give David the story. There was a rich guy and a poor guy, and the rich guy wanted to help the poor guy, but instead of the rich guy using his own stuff, he stole from someone else and then gave it to the poor guy. And then and, and David hears the story. He's like, who is this? I'm going to kill him. That's such an impolite thing to do. That's such a rude jerk thing to do. He shouldn't be doing that. And, and this is how David responds to this, to this fiction story that, that, that Nathan is telling. Then Nathan tells to David, you are that man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, that God is telling David. I anointed you king over all of Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I, God, have given you all of Israel and Judah. And if all this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Here is Nathan trying to wake up David and to shake him. And you see the impact of David's decision. By the way, if you want to know what happens from the situation, David gets to a point and, and there, there's murder involved. There is, you know, a, a baby out of wedlock that happens and just, and, and just tons of crazy bad things happen. You should check it out. It's in your Bible. It's a really good story. It's better, so much better than Netflix as far as what happens in the story. But we can find ourselves in this story. Like this is a reality when we allow success to blind us or we allow failure to blind us. And here is God sending a message to David through Nathan. And here's my thing that I want to leave us with. Do you have a Nathan in your life? Do you have someone to keep you in check? Do you have someone that you have opened the door with that you have allowed them, you've created a space for them to be like, hey, you sure about this? Or do you keep a distance away from everyone? Or do you, is your body language or your tone that no one can say that? Or if someone does, you get highly offended that you, you shut them off and you close them and you end up blocking them because they're trying to help you, right? And then you over-spiritualize it. Oh, this is the best thing for me to do is for me to block them. What if there is some truth? What if what that person was trying to tell you, maybe they did not say it in the best way. But what if there is some truth to what they did, they were trying to tell you, but you were so offended, you closed off. Either because you're at a highly successful state in your life and you're blinded, or you're in, 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 a, in a dark place and you're also blinded and you end up isolating yourself. Do you invite Nathans into your life of someone to keep you in check? Or do you keep this front that everything is good? This is just one. This is just one aspect of what causes us to struggle with loneliness is that we keep ourselves in our own bubble either through success or through failure. But maybe, maybe if we are emotionally healthy, maybe if we have a, a level of vulnerability, this is where we can fight an isolated bubble because we need one another. As much as you try to convince yourself, I don't need to open up with anyone, we do need each other. We need to have a healthy, balanced social life if we're wanting to reach the fullness of what God wants for you and for me. So for today, what I want us, what needs to resonate in our heart 
Who do you invite into your life to give you positive criticism that can keep you in check? Or do you distance yourself from everyone, including close friends and spouses? Let's stand up for a prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. Lord, give us clarity of mind to fight the deceptive thoughts that try to isolate us, to keep us in our own little bubble. But Lord, give us strength and clarity of thought for us to be vulnerable with one another, for us to learn from one another, for us to be humble to one another. Because, Lord, if we do this, this can prevent heartache. This can prevent pain. This can prevent tragedy. But, Lord, give us this heart to be open and receptive to hearing you working through those closest to us. Lord, help us to fight this toxic culture of individualism, but for us to embrace the reality that you have created us to be with one another. Through the prayers of all your saints, Lord, hear us as we pray together, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. In Christ Jesus our Lord, for thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Thank you, everybody. We'll continue this series next Sunday.